Martha Van Houten, and each week I'm here with Brian Buck, lead pastor at Oaks Parish, to go a little deeper into Sunday sermon and to keep the conversation going throughout the week as we journey together in learning what it means to abide in Christ for the renewal of all things. So let's dive in. Hello there, and welcome back to the Oaks Parish podcast, the last episode in our series titled Cheerful Giving. These conversations with special guests the last few weeks have been so fruitful, and I'm really grateful for everyone's willingness to wade into some difficult questions about our relationship to money and to consider some really practical ways we can steward our money well for the sake of generosity. So today is no different. Yesterday, we dove deep into the waters of stewardship examining the ways that our awareness of our relationship to money, our perspective on wealth, and our practical actions and strategy can lead us into stewarding our money, seeing it as a gift that actually deepens our life with Christ. So we'll get right into it. Brian, will you introduce our special guest today? We're excited to have Ben Cox joining us on the podcast today for our final episode in the Cheerful Giving series. Ben and I go way back, back to 2001. We're in the spring of our senior year of college. We were both recruited to work in the lighting industry by the same person who was visiting Omaha, Nebraska and met Ben, and then Knoxville, Tennessee, where this person met me. My journey took me from the marketplace to vocational ministry, whereas Ben did the inverse. Ben graduated with a degree in radio broadcasting and biblical studies from Grace University worked a stint in the lighting industry after college, and then went on to obtain his MBA from Columbia University in New York. Ben and I met uh, back in 2009 when I had just begun to serve as the assistant pastor at City Church Eastside in Atlanta. Ben, Sasha, and their boys moved to Atlanta for Ben's job at Bain Consulting. Back in 2013, Amanda and I were firming up plans for our move to Portland. Ben and Sasha came out to Portland for a week simply to pray and ask for God to go before us in what would become Oaks Parish. Incidentally, that week, God called them to join the cause, and they've helped build this community since day one. Over the past 10 years, Ben and Sasha have used their gifts of shepherding, leadership, hospitality, and music to make Oaks Parish what it is today. And as it specifically relates to the topic of money, through his education at Columbia and his experience working in consulting, private equity, and product development. Ben has seen the impact of money at every level. Ben, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Brian, thank you so much for the uh, for the kind intro. It has indeed been quite a journey that we've been on together with God uh, over the past, well, really 20, 20 plus years. It's amazing to see those threads come together. Well, to begin, Ben, we've had all of our <clears throat> recent guests share with us some reflections on their own stories and their relationship to money. So we'd love for you to do the same. How have you seen God at work in your own financial journey? So um, I'm the oldest of nine. Uh, My parents, uh, my dad's a a honeybee research scientist. My mom stayed home and, and, um, and homeschooled us. Uh, And my parents are a a super generous people. Um, They have always had, people in our home that were not, uh, that weren't their kids, but were living with them because of challenging situations. They've always been quick to give where they saw a need. 
And, uh, and how that's impacted my story is a couple of ways. First, you know, growing up, um, I always felt sort of a combination of superior to and less than the kids who had privileges of, of more wealth in our church um, growing up in Des Moines. So I was like, you know, I remember one time uh, we would get we, we would get clothing dropped off on our porch. Uh, uh, we were like the church charity case a little bit and we get clothing dropped off on our porch. And, and so we would sort through it and most of it would go go to Goodwill. But some of it would be like, oh, that's nice. I'll take it. I remember showing up to to youth group one time and some kid saying, Hey, that's my old shirt. And I'm trying to back to like, Oh, well, we must both have great tastes. Uh, but that sort of exemplified a little bit. It was a little bit of a embarrassment, but also like, I think I also looked down on those, those affluent kids. Um, we were scrappy. We had to work. And that was a, a point of pride for me. Um, the way that's reflected in my spiritual journey is, is we've been really, really richly blessed. And um, from just like a, a social standpoint, economic standpoint, have uh, our family has been super fortunate to grow up with much more means than, than my family did growing up. And so I think I've always felt this tension between materialism and asceticism that, that Brian discussed this last Sunday that, um, on the one hand, uh, God's blessed us and, and there's a temptation to spend it all on yourself to, you know, do the things that are fun and, and, uh, and, and buy those things that you want. And on the other hand, I think sometimes I've also felt a bit of shame around the fact that we've been blessed with material means and catch myself going out of apologizing for for things or emphasizing that we drive old cars or things like that um in real in 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 conversations with people so i think it's really been a journey that that god's taken us on of trying to figure out what does it mean to be generous how do you find that balance between materialism and asceticism yeah and do you have any tips or pointers or things that have really um, hit home for you about how you have kind of settled that tension? I don't think I've settled it. Um, but I can just share some of how we've thought about it. You know, the, the scriptural mandate in the new Testament is, is giving as God lays it on your heart. And then there's also the old Testament mandate of giving a tithe into the community. So the way we've interpreted that is, um, the tithe goes to the local church. So we tithe 10% to the local church, um, to our local church. But then we've also, um, uh, uh, at times when we've had, um, windfalls and things like that felt, uh, God's giving, God's leading us to give much more than that, maybe to the local church or other things where there's been, uh, something that's been on our hearts. And then, uh, kind of coming out of business school, that was a very transfer, you know, getting into business school uh, was, was transformative economically for us. It was kind of like, it was a lot of debt, but it was also like winning the lottery in terms of, of what it did for my earning potential. And coming out of business school, we started to have a conviction that we wanted to increase our percentage of giving by 50 basis points each year. And that giving oftentimes is going into not just, you know, so it's, it's, we're diverting that above 10% into uh, local and global missions and other, and other nonprofits, but trying to every year 
challenge ourselves on a percentage basis, not just an absolute dollar basis to give more um, and, and doing that first. And I always try to consider the last thing I'll say about how we've interpreted that called generosity is, is doing it pre-tax and thinking about all elements of compensation. So we tithe off of 401k contribution matches, health insurance premiums that are provided through the employer, like all that stuff um, is we, we, we tithe off of. So that's, that's how we've thought about, thought about it um, over the past, uh, you know, uh, decades I, that might, might be helpful to some people, uh, but that's, that's what God, God has put on our heart. Ben, yesterday we talked about our tendency as human beings to fall off the horse <laughs> to both sides, either to materialism or asceticism, which you just mentioned, but that the gospel ultimately leads us to see that money is a gift. And how does that third way give us direction, seeing money as a gift for good stewardship? I think what it does is it answers the question of what the money's for. Is it yeah. for us? Is it for somebody else? Right? Because mm -hmm. if it's a gift, right, it's not automatically for someone else. Right. It's, it's not like if somebody gives you a gift, you know, you don't automatically say, well, you really meant it for this other person over here who probably should have it. Right. So there's like the tension there of like, OK, so you're but you also at the same time want to pay it forward. So it's not for you. Just it, it, it's a gift. It's not it's not just for you. It is to pay forward, but it's but it is also something that God has entrusted you with. So uh, maybe that's a little bit of insight. I found the quote that you had from C.S. Lewis uh, from Mere Christianity super helpful that um, I think there's also an element of sacrifice, right? That uh, asceticism sort of goes off the direction of ultimate sacrifice, while, uh, while there can also be a world in which you always prioritize yourself. But I liked the C.S. Lewis quote that said something along the lines of, if we are not living a bit below the standard of living for other people in our income bracket, so to speak, mm -hmm. then we're probably not giving sacrificially enough. And I think that's a, a very clear and logical way to think about it, because mm -hmm. if you're giving sacrificially, then you're actually making a trade-off and you're not going to be able to do the things that other people in your income bracket might be able to do. I will acknowledge that that may start to break down um, uh, as you get lower on the income scale. And, and it may be hard from a necessities of life perspective to do that. But um, I do think, especially in our case where we've been blessed with having enough um, throughout our, our, our time as a family, that that's been, that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Leave it to C.S. Lewis to be clear and logical, even with money. <laughs> yes. Yes. One thing when I'm thinking about shifting perspectives, you know, on money, how do we shift perspective to this view of money as a gift when we're so caught up in seeing our money, nearly all of it at least, as earned or as owed to us for our time or our service, for example? What do you do with that, Ben? I have a couple of reflections. On the one hand, you could look at it and say, well, it's not, you know, God blesses me with this money as a gift. It's not earned. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't need to be careful with career choices or negotiate for my salary or anything like that. Like, but why, you know, why, why, right? It's just, God will give me what God's going to give me 
and I just need to trust God and go through life and do that. Um, and maybe that's the right answer, but and maybe in some vocations, but you know, I've been in business in the marketplace for most of my career. And in, at least in that scenario, if you've been given a set of, if we, if we go beyond money to our, our gifts, our talents, our abilities, our skills, the experiences in our life that enable us to be able to be productive in particular vocations, if you're not managing those gifts and capabilities well, right? If you're not asking for, uh, uh, for the raise, or, or whatever it might be, if you stay at one job for longer than you need to, because it's comfortable when you could potentially uh, make more money somewhere else, you know, maybe th if that's, that's actually just a stewardship question. Am I stewarding my gifts and abilities in such a way that's going to enable me to be more generous um, and, and take God's gifts and, and, and pay them forward just as, you know, he gave them to us. One research study showed that debt is the number one barrier to generosity. So what is your advice to those who might be struggling with debt? Throughout my life, between a lot of, a lot of relationships, one thing I've learned about debt is sometimes we have a tendency to assume that debt is the, is the result of bad choices. And sometimes it is. Sometimes you uh, buy the car that a brand new car that you didn't need to buy and you get into debt and then you're, you're stuck. Um, and sometimes you uh, have, uh, you know, a ice storm like last week and a water pipe bursts in your house and you have to do water remediation and there's no other way to pay for it. And you're stuck. You have no choices um, mm -hmm. if you're going to keep your family safe and, and so on. And so, um, uh, the first thing I'll say is, is that if, if you're stuck in that situation, um, maybe there's a, uh, an element of, of needing to look at your lifestyle and say, am I living above my means? Oftentimes not so. And, and I don't want people to necessarily feel a sense of guilt and shame around, around debt in that situation. Um, the advice that I would have for those struggling with debt is two or threefold. Um, first, ask God to help you get out of debt and potentially be willing to ask others. Um, I have seen numerous situations where um, medical bills have caused potential for debt you know, or other things where other people are willing to help. And it's hard because you got to swallow your pride, but it's worth, it's worth asking. And if, and what I've also found is, is when people understand that you've been a good steward of your resources, but, you know, life has its twists and turns and something unfortunate has happened, people are, are there's oftentimes more available than you might think that uh, available to you in those situations. There are entire groups of people out there, nonprofits, that will go out and pay off medical debt for people in communities. So there may be resources out there if you're willing to ask for help, both, you know, people you know and and um and uh and also community organizations so i would say that's that's my first comment is be, be second comment be willing to ask ask for help the third is um i think it's important to develop a plan and when it comes to developing a plan to retire debt um i think there are 
kind of three different elements of, of the plan. And I think most of the time people are thinking about one of these elements, not all three. Um, the first is uh, creating a plan to sort of manage your expenses, including, and this is really important, the debt expense itself. Oftentimes there are opportunities um, where you can consolidate debt and reduce the interest rate significantly. So you obviously need to make sure that you don't have an overall like upside down expense profile before you do this, but uh, it's definitely worth thinking in looking at your entire budget, including the interest payments that you're making and asking the question, okay, if we were able to in reduce this by a certain percentage, could we then get the debt paid off faster? So looking at all those, the second is to look at your revenue and say, what is it that we could do to increase the money coming in so that we could pay off the debt? Um, this is where I have seen um, pretty cool things happen. Sometimes people asking for raises, some people saying, look, I'm looking around and other people with my experience are making $20,000 a year more than me. I'm getting paid minimum wage and with my experience, I should be able to get something better, especially right now with a very low unemployment rate. Um, be willing to make a change um, if you're in the short term or the long term. Sometimes some people will 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 take on second jobs, uh, you know, to help pay off debt. And if you're in your primary job is not super taxing, maybe that's an answer too. But I'd highly recommend uh, looking at your revenue picture as well. So look at the expenses, look at the revenue. Then make a plan. The third element is, is, is what are you going to pay off first? And, um, you know, you touched on this in a previous podcast, but there's a couple of different methodologies you can look at there. I think you just probably kind of depends on what your composition of your debt load is uh, to, to, to do that. Um, so those are like the practical things. I would say on a spiritual level, um, it's worth like just having a conversation, you know, with your uh, discipleship group leader or, or others to talk about it and understand what's going on spiritually around it. Um, not saying that the debt is a sin problem. It could just be that you need other people to pray and support you as you're walking through a tough time and, and help you help you walk through those things. And you know what, these people are also going to be there to celebrate with you as you reach those milestones and pay off some debts. And, you know, I've seen, I've seen uh, resources come out of that as well. So. I, I love I love that picture of bringing this into community, which is something that we talked about uh, week one. That part of the 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 trappings of wealth is that when we struggle, it's such a a private matter in our culture that it just kind of becomes this lonely, silent struggle, but when we bring it into community, we're really bringing it into the light, the light of Christ. So Ben, um, a few minutes ago, you mentioned like the winter storm that just came through and how to prepare for those kind of emergencies in life. If someone listening was seeking to build an emergency fund, how much money are we talking about there and where should they park that money? I would say that an emergency fund, there's, there's different levels there that you can look at. Even having a couple thousand dollars put away can oftentimes save you from having to make decisions under a squeeze 
where you sign up for something and you can't pay for it now. So you either put on a credit card or the contractor offers you these terms and they've got teeth in them that you don't realize just kind of getting, getting stuck where you don't have any choices. And so I would say if you can have a few hundred dollars, that is way better than having nothing. And if you can have a couple thousand dollars, that's way better than having a few hundred dollars. Um, I will say that that the, the sort of rule of thumb that's out there in the financial world is three to six months of income because that helps tide you over if there's somebody loses a job. And I have I've I've been in that situation before in my career. Uh so I, I think that is something to strive for, but it takes time. So you're like, okay, that that's great, Ben, but like like we're barely making it each month. How on and look, we've cut everything. Like we are so careful. How are we going to come up with that? And, you know, th that was honestly the, the, the situation that I grew up with um, in my family uh, of origin. And a couple of things my parents did, which I thought were just kind of interesting that to try to create these rainy day funds that oftentimes were used during rainy days was they would, uh, they uh, like, for instance, my, my dad was paid biweekly, but bills are monthly. So you kind of have like an extra paycheck a couple times a year because of that, like three paychecks in a month. And so they would squirrel away a chunk of that, right? Because it wasn't in the warp and wah. If, if your job pays a bonus, my dad worked for the government, there weren't much in terms of bonuses. Uh, but, if you, but if you pay for a job that has a bonus, don't, don't set your lifestyle at the, your income, including some assumed bonus. Uh, save some, of, try to use some of that bonus. Another thing that people can do is if you uh, if you're if if you do get a return a tax you know so a refund on your taxes because you overpaid during the year you obviously don't want to be doing too much of that because that's a free loan to the government with zero percent interest but uh, but if there's you know a few hundred dollars thousand dollars that 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 comes back because of uh, um, your taxes uh, your tax refunds that's a good way to, to squirrel things away a, a good thing you can use to squirrel things away as well. Thinking about emergency uh, funds, I have a bit of a side note, slightly related, but before we became parents, we used to get referred to quite often by some people as dinks, dual income, no kids. Uh -huh. The reality being that you have two incomes, you know, and no additional bodies to provide for. But the deeper perception being that therefore you have tons of financial freedom you don't have to make many sacrifices when it comes to spending. You have more disposable income. And that always really irked me. Maybe some people don't mind being identified that way. And I know that term is out there. I understand the reality of, you know, money coming in and money going out and children definitely cost money. Our budget does look different now than it did before Leo. But before Leo, when we were both working full time and it was just the two of us, it's not like we were exempt from stewarding our money or excused from generosity. And now that we have another body to feed and clothe and nurture, like that's not an exemption either. There's this invitation, I think, in all of our circumstances to wrestle with like whatever we consider maybe to be that extra or that disposable income, if you want to call it that that our financial choices then reflect our values and the call to generosity. So just made me think of that. But practically speaking, do you think that this advice, you know, is any different for someone who's maybe single or a couple or a family with any number of children? 
Yeah. Uh, I do think that things are going to differ in your life when you can do more of the harvesting and when you're going to be doing more of the sowing, so to speak. So uh, yeah, uh, if you are blessed to be in a situation where uh, dual income, no kids, or you are having a spectacular year, you're, you're in sales and you, you close, you know, the big, the big deal, right. And you get a giant commission check or whatever. If you have that uh, opportunity, like, yeah, do, do save for the future. Do do that. Do build up your emergency fund. Like don't, don't tr try to avoid, try to avoid. Uh, we always tend to think as human beings, this is like documented and thinking fast and slow and behavioral psychology. We kind of tend to like take whatever we're at right now and assume that's what it's going to be in the future. You know, stuff happens, right? Like don't assume that you're, if you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year this year, that that's what's going to happen next year and the year after and the year after. There might be some years of leanness after some years of fatness. And we see this biblical precedent with Joseph and his very good advice to the Pharaoh of like, yeah, you might need to save some of it because, you know, people are going to need to eat later. And we even saw that in our experience at Oaks Parish. So um, a little inside baseball for Oaks Parish is, is uh, you know, right after we particularized, we had several large gifts for some in, from some individuals that had had some windfalls. And so we had several large gifts that came in um, to us. And uh, there was a conversation of like, do we need to go, you know, scale up some ministry opportunities or buy a piece of property or do some things like that? And, you know, the, 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 our, our leadership team at the time said, hey, look, we um, we're a young church. We're a little church. We're not a ton of people. Um, we should save we should save this for an emergency fund. And it was that, you know, six, eight months worth of expenses. Well, then lo and behold, a year later, what happens? The pandemic. And our, our money coming into money going out as a church flipped. We were burning cash. We, we kind of burned through that emergency fund during the pandemic when we needed to. And, and, uh, but then as we've grown out of the pandemic, we're, we're in a, a financially sustainable position and have been for a, about a year and a half now. Uh, there's times of, there's times of, of great harvest and times of, of famine. And so I think it's important to take advantage of those opportunities. Good word, Ben. According to the United States Census Bureau, half of millennials and 92% of Gen Z don't have retirement accounts. I'm a millennial, I'll admit it. And I do have a retirement account, though I can't say I started as early as I could or should have. But why do you think that saving for the future is so intimidating, first of all? And what advice do you have for retirement planning? So uh, I would say, why is it so intimidating? I think it's because of the fact that it is hard to know what you're supposed to do, right? It's mm -hmm. not super clear. Um, there was this uh, business school professor I had, uh, Shina Yengar, amazing individual. And she did these, these studies on choice architecture. And they did this one fascinating study where they uh, set up a, uh, like a, a grocery store and did like a, a jam special. And they put out 25 flavors of jams and asked people to taste one of them and see what they bought. Um, 
And then they did another one where they had four kinds of jam and asked people to taste and, and see how many of those converted to sales. The four, the display with four kinds of jam vastly outsold the one with 25 kinds of jam. It's called uh, choice. Uh, what the, there's some term for it. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's basically that you get overwhelmed with too many decisions. And I think that's maybe at the root of it. And it feels really important. And you're like, and it's a long ways away. So it's kind of hard. I don't, you know, like in your, in your 20s to be thinking about like what I'm going to, what I'm, I'm 65. I mean, really? So I think that that's, that's why it's, it's so hard. Um, when it comes to retirement planning, I think that there is a tendency to go on one of two sides of either avoiding it altogether, or there's this like, there's this movement that you hear a lot about, about people who are trying to become financially independent at a young age, um, you know, like work really, really hard and retire when you're 40 type of a, a, a deal. And I just want to call out that that's also like being financially independent is just another way to say that you're wealthy. Okay. Like pursuing that is pursuing wealth. Okay. So mm -hmm. let's, let's be honest about what that's all about. Cause I've, I've heard even within sometimes within the church, as Brian shared on Sundays, wealth is like thrown as a sound seen as a signal of, of virtue uh, on one side of the ditch. So on one side of the ditch, you have like not even thinking about it. And the other, it's saying, I'm going to idolize this thing and go after like trying to be financially independent by the time I'm 40. I want to retire when I'm 40. I don't think either of those are super helpful. So I will tell you the way I think about it from the lens of stewardship. And that is maximize the free money. If there are opportunities to essentially create returns on your investment, to take your in the biblical metaphor, your talent and make it 1.5 or two talents in a way that, you know, most, most investments have a risk reward profile, right? You can invest in small tech stocks and you might lose a lot of money or you might make a lot of money, or you can buy us government bonds and you're not going to lose your money, but you're probably not going to make a lot of money. And there's this risk reward continuum that you're investing on. Well, what's great is when it comes to things like if your employer has a 401k match, so that means if you divert $100, they'll match with, with an additional $50. You're generating an instant 50% return on that investment with no risk, right? You didn't, it, you could, it could be in government bonds, right? Something very, very low risk. Um, and, and you generated that. So just, just by putting your money in. So I always think about retirement saving as like at the very minimum, do the maximum that you can match. It's usually like 5%. You can, do, you can put away up to 5% of your income and then your employer will match half of that or, or two thirds of it, or sometimes even a hundred percent. That's free money. Like do that. If you do nothing else, do that. And then from that point forward, I start thinking about like, what are the different uh, tax strategies? Because once again, if there's income that you would have paid taxes on and then you don't pay taxes on it, that's an instant, depending on your tax bracket, 10, 15, 20, 25% of return you're getting instantly. So then maybe that's the next level of trying to put money away is, is, is push as much as you can um, into those, you know, 401k or, or there's also IRAs. And none of these are going to allow you to like, hundreds of thousands of dollars of income or anything like that. 
generally like the limit on IRA contributions is $6,000 per person per year. So you can, that's a, that's achainable with 401ks. It's a bit higher. It's I think 23,000 this, this year in 2024. Um, but being able to maximize those opportunities, uh, I think if you do that consistently from the time you start your career and you, you maximize your 401k match, and then you make a good dent towards uh, putting something, you know, along the lines of, 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 you know, 10 to 15% of your income away into tax deferred accounts, you're probably going to be fine in retirement. So that's how I think about it. So just start, start, start with your 401k match. And then if you are able to, uh, when you get a raise, like automatically put some of that into the, in, in, into your retirement account, like don't even let it hit your paycheck, like divert 50% of it to your, to, to, uh, to your, to your retirement, divert, you know, another, you know, 20% of that raise to, uh, to, uh, to your auto pay uh, giving. Uh, and, and then uh, just let a little bit of it trickle to your own bottom line. Cause you will find a way to spend it almost certainly if it hits your bank account, <laughs> if you're anything like me. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite financial podcasts, uh, they have a saying on the podcast that they use regularly. It's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. Yeah. And so getting money, like you said, um, in there on a monthly basis and just being patient and allowing it to build over time is biblical wisdom. Interestingly enough, as you were talking about, you know, this idea that that we just need to chase money, that like out of sometimes the stress and the strain, we like we just need to swing to the other end of the pendulum and just try to start figuring out how to make money fast. Uh, Paul Tripp, in his book, Redeeming Money, which is a book that I highly recommend, uh, he tells a story of a husband and a wife. Um, they had a couple of kids and and they just got tired of where they were financially and they just started to pursue money and they started buying and getting all the things that they dreamed of. And then in the end, the couple's marriage broke apart because they were just working so much to try to obtain this lifestyle that they thought would be the answer. Um, and in the end, that pursuit of money destroyed their family. So, um, yeah, I think there's a, there's a biblical vision here of, of saving over time um, in a way that arises from, content, uh, from contentment. Yeah, I mean, possessions own you, right? Mm -hmm. you, you know, you buy the car and then you got to maintain the car. Um, they say that if you buy a boat, right, the happiest days you, the two happiest days you have when you buy a boat is the day you buy it and the day you sell it, right? So, um, I mean, that's just wisdom that's out <laughs> by the by common grace in the world. Uh, a simple life, and I'm not talking about necessarily asceticism, but uh, it's. I think oftentimes when people uh, buy things, even if it's a one-time expense, they are not cognizant of the recurring toll and expense on their time and their resources that it's going to require. We've, you know, had friends that have bought vacation homes and then they spend all of their time on all of their vacations 
fixing up, fixing things that are breaking on their vacation home. And I, I don't know about you, but that, that sounds absolutely terrible to me. So I think simplicity is, is really important for a life of, um, of generosity. Because both of you are parents of, I think, Gen Zers. I'm, I'm curious about the way, and you can both answer this, that you are kind of discipling your kids and some of these principles of stewardship. Going back to retirement, I wasn't actively contributing to retirement until I got married, which was not wise of me. I was 29 when I got married, so I don't know what I thought I was going to do. But it also, I think, speaks a little bit to the way perhaps that maybe you know, my parents' generation raised maybe even their daughters specifically. And I don't mm-hmm. know if there's anything more to say about that, except for that, like, Ben, you have three sons. Brian, you have two daughters. I know you're all over it. But, you know, I I, I want to be hopeful that young women are receiving the same advice as young men are throughout their adolescence and early adult years. But just as you do kind of disciple your kids in these principles of stewardship, what are some things that you're sharing with them or how are you bringing them in, you know, to your decisions or your thoughts now? Well, we're super nerdy about this kind of stuff. Um, so when they, you know, one of the things I wanted my kids to understand was the time value of money, but like a 5% interest rate, which is really good on a savings account, 5% per year is just not meaningful to a six-year-old. Uh, right. Cause that's like 20% of their life for an extra five cents on their dollar. And they're just like, what? Um, so we did this thing where we, uh, I paid 10% per month in the bank of dad, um, which you can't do for very long because if you do the math on that interest rate, I owe my kids like a trillion dollars by the time they were 30. Uh, so we, uh, we, we transitioned them out of that, but we actually would start them out at a very high interest rate. They were younger and then march it down. And then when they turned 13, we would open their, we opened their first bank account, uh, uh, you know, at the local credit union. Um, and then they'd have to kind of merge into the normal, the normal world of financial But that way they got a sense of if, if I don't spend it, it grows. Hmm. If I leave it alone. So we would do that. And then the other thing we did is we always kind of have have somewhat mandated a savings, spending, giving framework, starting with the tithe. And um and uh and they they kind of manage that ledger in a Google Sheet actually uh uh for themselves. Um and you know, every so often they're like, Dad, I need to I need to give. Can you help me set up the the bill pay or whatever. So um, that's what we've talked about that. We've had a lot of conversations. My kids are growing up way with way more resources than I did growing up. Um, mm-hmm. So we talk a lot about entitlement and them being grateful for the opportunities they have uh, to, to do things that maybe like I didn't, my kids and we learned how to ski. That wasn't an option being one of nine kids in Iowa. Um, and we talk to them a lot about this is a privilege and and the gratitude that we want to have for that. And, and then being generous as a default posture towards, towards others. Martha, I think that's a a great question. And uh, I want to begin saying on one side of the coin, um, Amanda and I have uh, not done the job that Ben and Sasha have done (laughs) raising good financial stewards. 
you know, one of the things that I've seen actually impact my kids uh, growing up was uh, my own relationship with money. And I've had, as I've mentioned in this series, I've had a lot of anxiety through the years around money. And uh, our kids have picked up on that. And I think at least for some of them, it's created their own anxious relationship with money. So having that awareness is really key to, um, you know, how we're thinking about discipling our kids with money. On the other side of that coin, um, we, uh, as we have now have older children um, over Christmas break, as really a result of living into this series, I, um, I pulled our girls together and we did like an at-home financial seminar about financial cornerstones. And, um, and that included things like budgeting, uh, tithing, saving, and then thinking about beginning to think about retirement. Uh, one of the things that we chose, we've chosen to do is, um, you know, our kids needs vehicles as they get older and are going to do their things. And I, I was raised with like, you know, saving money for my own vehicle. Um, but old cars are really cheap. And so we've just, um, like we have a, a, a car that our girls share and, um, and so the money that they make from their job, uh, we are directing them to put that money into their 529 college fund so that they're beginning to help pay for their own college versus taking out student loans. Uh, well, to close us out here, uh, as we think about what does it mean to be a good steward and how do we avail ourselves to resources that help with stewardship, early on in the series, about a month ago, uh, we posted a reading list on Instagram. I think we also included that on the weekly email. We'd encourage people to check out those books. One of really my favorite financial, personal financial podcast is called Rich Habits. And I'd highly recommend that to you. It's not by any means a Christian podcast, but it is a lot of common grace wisdom that gets into a lot of the details that we just have not been able to go into in the sermon series or the podcast. So I encourage folks to check that out. Ben, you got resources, books you'd recommend? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, maybe on the sort of a, the other side of the coin from the practical, uh, from a theological perspective, I, and there are practical implications. Practicing the King's economy was really good. Uh, Robbie Holt, Robert, or Michael uh, Rhodes, Brian Ficker um, really gets into a theology of how both on an individual and on a, like a, an organizational, even communal level, we should be thinking about applying biblical principles to how we to economics and how we um, how we engage in money and trade and commerce with with our neighbors. Thank you, Ben, for giving us so much to process and lending your expertise to this conversation. You always offer a deep well of insight, and it's been a gift to our community for you to share with us today. Thank you, Martha. Thank you, Brian. That wraps our series on cheerful giving. In addition to our gratitude to all our special guests, I want to thank Brian for bringing bravely and wisely embarking on this series. I think it was obvious from week to week how much the Spirit was leading you and helping us to discover God's desire for our relationship to money. So thank you. And if anyone is asking what's next, particularly on the podcast, come back later this week for the release of our podcast Reflections for Lent. Each week between Ash Wednesday and Palm Sunday, you'll find two new episodes published 
with scripture and reflections and prayer practices to guide you with a rhythm in this season. So don't miss those. In the meantime, blessings on you all in this week, and we'll look forward to our next conversation down the road. Bye.